Have you ever wondered about the truth behind Bigfoot or Yeti? Our next guest is Marion Bailey, who moved from Western Australia to the East Coast to pursue her PhD at Southern Cross University under the supervision of our very own Associate Professor Renaud Janus Bayot. Marion's research focuses on narrowing down the extinction window for Gigantopithecus, the largest ape to ever live, and the source of the Yeti and Bigfoot myths. Her supervisor Renaud is a world leader in geochemistry and archaeology. He's had publications in the scientific journal Nature and made world news headlines for his work in understanding ancient human ancestors through analysing their teeth, right here in his world-class lab at Lismore campus. Marion, welcome to the studio. Hello, thanks for having me. So I really want to get into your research, but first I kind of want to go background and sort of how you actually got into, into this area. So you have a passion for human evolution. Where does that come from? Um... I think I always loved science, but I have a sort of a humanities heart. And when I was in high school, you know, we had this great human biology teacher who would always explain human evolution to us in the most interesting ways. But I thought, oh, I can't study something like that because I'm terrible at maths, like really bad. I had tutoring the whole way through and then I quit it after year 10. Um, And so when I got to uni, I thought, oh, well you know, there's no way I can do something like that. And then I I found archaeology and it was this great combination of science and humanities and the science was framed in a way that you didn't really have to be some incredible STEM-oriented person to understand what was going on. And I I just kept studying it and I was like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Like, where did we come from? Like, I can find that out. What was your undergraduate like? Yeah, it... It was definitely, it's an unusual path to take. I did an undergrad, I did a Bachelor of Arts and I majored in archaeology. Uh, for most undergrads in archaeology in Australia though, it's it's very heavily heritage management focused or Indigenous archaeology, so looking you know, at rock art. Um, and definitely we don't have much of a focus like in Europe where they do bioarchaeology and forensic archaeology and osteology and that kind of thing. So... I, I really was purely humanities, but I was reading all these papers that were looking at like ancient DNA and population genetics and all this really interesting stuff. And I was like, man, I have got to study that. So it was actually, I got to the end of my undergrad and I started looking for supervisors and master's programs who were going to be focusing on like the chemistry side of archaeology and needed students. And I approached a few and I found one at Flinders and he took me on. So, And was it honours that you went into next before PhD or was it straight into PhD? I went into a master's program. Right, okay. Yeah, so I did a, um, it's like a year of coursework and then a year-long dissertation. Ah, right, right. So, And the supervisors that you found, are they your, they're not your current supervisors though? Actually, I kept one of them. We got on so well, he's now a co-supervisor for my PhD. Oh, wow, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and um, my current supervisor... He and my master's supervisor, they did their PhDs together. Wow. Yeah. No, it is a small that world, is a isn't small it? small world. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your your current research that you're doing. How, how did you get into that? And how did you pick that as, mm-hmm. as sort of your project? It actually probably starts back in my master's. Um, so I focused on isotope geochemistry. And what that means is that you take um, like a bodily tissue in this case teeth and you run like a, an analysis like a mass spectrometer analysis and you can look at the com- composition of different isotopes 
In particular, I looked at strontium, which is a really fascinating isotope because it effectively tracks where you've been in the environment throughout your life. It, it is within the food you eat and the water you drink, and so that leaves a permanent marker in your teeth. And then we can track that through the years. And so I became quite um, knowledgeable in that area during my master's. Um, and I was looking at Homo erectus and Neanderthal mobility. And so, yeah, I was kind of already in that, you know, ancient hominin area. And I decided I really wanted to pursue that with a PhD. And my supervisor was, he's an expert in this area in isotope geochemistry and in archaeology. It's kind of a okay. rare combination. Um, and he had this project that was kind of just waiting for a PhD student. Um, and with my background and him needing someone, it kind of fitted in really well. And effectively, what I'm doing is, like you said, I'm looking at the extinction window for Gigantopithecus. But that in itself is like a massive project. You know, this is actually a big ARC discovery project. It's got multiple people involved, more than one PhD student on it. But my area in particular is that isotope geochemistry. I'm taking those teeth and I'm running different types of uh, trace element analysis on them, different types of chemistry, and I'm trying to figure out what they ate throughout their life, uh, where they were moving, kind of their mobility, uh, their weaning age, so, you know, when they were stopped being breastfed. And I'm not looking at just one individual, you know, I'm looking at about 65, 70 individuals, and they span the course of nearly 1.3 million years. Wow. Yeah. That is amazing. So, so there's a bunch of other students all kind of trying to come at this from different points, and where you're coming at it from is isotope research on their teeth that's right yeah right and so how is how is that going are you narrowing that extinction window down or is it it's a collective effort across all the different disciplines yeah it's kind of a collective effort so we've got people who are um like my supervisors doing a lot of the dating of the teeth to get really accurate dates we've got other people who are doing the the geochronology of the actual sites so getting all those soils and stratigraphy and getting like a really great idea of where those animals were positioned in time um, and what kind of their, their that looked like. And then there are others um, who are doing their PhDs on, say, like the meso and microware of teeth. So really looking at how they're eating and chewing and um, getting a better idea of the specific types of plants. So with mine, when I say I look at their diet, I can really just narrow it down to the photosynthetic pathway of the plants they were eating. So were they eating more grasses and um, sort of dry bushland, you know, arid environment plants or were they eating more sort of jungle tropical plants? And that's where you can see that change over time, whereas the other PhD students are really looking at the exact kind of like all seeds or fruits and things like that. And so it's like this really big collective effort. Right. So has there been a change? I'm guessing they, they either migrated or there was a change in their environment or something that would have resulted in them eating different stuff. Hmm. So Yeah, it's still it's still pretty early days. So a lot of it's um, kind of still in the hypothesis area. But it, it does look like that probably what was happening is that there was this big climate shift and they seemed to be really niche feeders. So they were only eating certain types of, of plants and kind of like the panda really sticks with bamboo. They weren't quite that niche, but they weren't really adaptable. 
And so probably what's happened is this big climate shift has happened and they've not really been able to move out of the environment that they're living in. And, and so as food resources go down and perhaps their population wasn't able to keep up as well, I mean, it is still pretty early days for everyone. The project's only a couple of years old, so we're starting to just get the data out. That's amazing. So there's a, so it's a mass spectrometer that we have here. Hmm. Um, what makes this one so unique? Yeah, so the one that's just arrived, we, we were building it um, around July, I guess. It's actually the only one in the Southern Hemisphere of its kind. And we do have a couple of mass specs here at Southern Cross, but this one, I mean, I guess to be specific, it's a Neptune XT, um, which it's just got some special additions with the Faraday cups. And I mean, it, it gets a little bit technical and probably not that interesting. No, no, bring it on. <laughs> no, it's just, it's got the capabilities to measure some like extraordinarily small amounts of isotope um, and it can really boost up sort of the, the sample volume that you're getting. So if you've really only got tiny, tiny amounts, it's able to amplify that and you can actually still get really good values. Um, it can be really limited sometimes. Um, and this gets around that. Right. This might be a really dumb question, but what is an isotope? Oh, um, so, you know, like an element, like say water of not an element, but you know, like oxygen, for instance. Right. Well, oxygen has two naturally occurring isotopes and all it just means is that there's like a different mass to them. So there's oxygen 18 and there's oxygen 16 and they're just two isotopes. They're just two versions, I guess you would say, of the same element. Um, and it just means they have slightly different masses. And so when they decay over time, um, you get different um radiogenic isotopes um i haven't explained it for a while so probably not do a very good job but it's why we look at the ratio between them so we look at the ratio between oxygen 18 and oxygen 16 and that will give us like an interesting value um yeah gosh (laughs) so you can look at those so you can look at the way it decays and then figure out sort of so when you're looking at the teeth what what kind of isotopes are you finding is it a very okay. specific isotope yeah yeah so we we you, you can find pretty much anything as long as it's it's in there but we specifically want to find things like strontium um barium is a really good one lead because you can kind of see stress um yeah and then we we do others that focus on what we call the light isotope so that's carbon oxygen nitrogen um, and that used a different technique completely. Right. And so the different levels that you find of these isotopes in the teeth, mm. that's actually essentially what tells you so much stuff about, you said even yeah. babies weaning. How does how do you figure that out just from teeth? Yeah. it's uh, So that's really an interesting one. And well, actually we can look at calcium too as part of that. Well, what happens is, is when you, um, obviously babies' teeth aren't kind of out and exposed. It's a bit scary to think about to right. be honest, a baby with teeth. But we, when they're when they're drinking the milk, they're getting a certain signature into the teeth that's being recorded, like the amounts of calcium ah, okay. and magnesium and things like that. And then once they transition onto soft foods, you're getting another signature completely in the teeth. And so you can actually see that like a band across the tooth. And when I say not across the tooth visible to the human eye, but like in the isotope composition of the tooth. So you can see that shift. Wow. So do you cut the teeth open down the middle? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, you cut them d- 
down sort of like the first cusp. You know, when you look at a molar, you've got those little sort of round ridges in it. You cut it down the first to grow. And so that's different from each species. Um, and it's different depending on the tooth as well. Um, but we tend to pick the third molar is a really good one. And then you cut it down that first growth cusp. Right. And then that's what you fire the laser into? Yeah, that's right. So you polish it down so it's like super, super bright and, and shiny. And then you, you fire the laser across it and you fire it all the way around the entire tooth. So you get this like com- complete map, I guess you would say. Right. Okay. Mm. You were telling me before we um, went live that you had a call with your supervisor <laughs> to discuss different tactics for preparing the teeth. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. Why is there such a variation in the different ways you can even prepare a tooth? Um, well, when you think about, I guess, what we're doing, we're looking at the most tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of isotopes in these teeth, you know. Some of these teeth are a million years old. There's not a lot left. And so when you need to treat the tooth, which means you're getting rid of any organics that have been sort of seeped into the tooth or sticking on the tooth from its time in the ground you have to use really gentle cleaning methods but you still need to use something that's strong enough to remove it and so that often involves an acid but when you're then doing an isotope analysis on the teeth those types of acids can actually interfere in your analysis and so you really have to be quite careful about what you're using because you don't know if it's going to interact with your analysis afterwards so what I was trying to figure out was looking at a few different papers that were all <laughs> using different pretreatments, and I was trying to think, which one do I want to use, if any, or do I need to kind of come up with my own? So Wow, that's a lot of research. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so how have you found that the step up from sort of undergrad into master's into PhD, what's the transition like? Is it, is it a lot more work? Are you on your own a lot more? It's a massive um, step in the amount of work you do, for sure. I always thought I was busy in my undergrad. <laughs> and you, you are, you know, it's it's different. You have kind of assignments due and that's that sort of work. But then when you go to your master's, it's, yeah, there's assignments due, but it's you're really quite independent. And then you have the research component, you know, a thesis, and that's you're driving that. But your supervisors are still there and they really sort of help focus the project and it's you know a bit more involved but when you get to your PhD you really are I mean you're being paid most of the time to be a researcher and so it's a lot on you to make sure that the project is going the way you want it you have to really be in charge of all your deadlines a lot of the time your supervisor and you know this is the case for so many people um, your supervisor's incredibly busy they have many PhD students they're running their own research you kind of have to be like hey uh, we're having a meeting tomorrow like let's go do that or keep them in line it's really you have to be quite independent and and willing to take the initiative and just work a lot yeah bet so so it's really hard to sort of fight for their time and you don't know if you're taking up too much of their time or you still need sort of their guidance and it's a bit of a balancing act and I mean that's not to say that they're doing anything wrong. You know, I mean, my supervisor's fantastic. But you, you do have to be your own advocate a lot of the time because, you know, they're giving you, they're treating you like a peer a lot of the time. They're treating you like a colleague because you will be soon. And they want you to become an independent researcher. And so 
that also means being able to say, actually, I need help now. So, yeah. Mm. So these teeth, they are, just to switch gears a little bit, yeah. they're, they're really rare. How many, how many do you have here? Um, here we have about 70. Wow. So there's actually only been, I think, about 2,000 found in the whole world. Wow. Okay, wow. And mm. you have 70 here. Yeah. So is it, do they get found very often? Is it like super exciting when they like, is there people out doing sort of the, in the field work kind of mm. looking for them still or? Yeah. So these excavations have been ongoing since the early sixties. Uh, oh. So that's not many teeth for ongoing excavations for the last, well, how many years was that? 40, 60? Yeah, 60 years. 60 years. So it's, it's always very exciting when any are found. And I mean, they were initially found in, in a drugstore in China, you know, for traditional oh, wow. medicine. You know, this um, anthropologist came across them and went, well, hang on a moment. I've never seen teeth like that before. And then it was this massive thing. And, you know, uh, it's been really led by the Chinese for sure. They've been super involved and really re like amazing anthropologists from China have been excavating these areas for ages. Um but it's just they're really rare. You know, there's no skeletal remains. There's only, I think, three jaw mandibles found and the rest are teeth. Oh, no way. Mm. So really it is just the teeth that remains from yeah, this particular... Yeah, that's all we have. Right. And so the Bigfoot myths. Yeah. Let's get to the Bigfoot myths. <laughs> <laughs> so where do they come from? What's the story there? Well, you know, I think sort of it's not unusual throughout human history for people to, to sort of create these ideas and there'd been a few kind of oh maybe there's this big sort of ape man around the uh, americas but it, it was kind of because these were found in 1957 these first teeth it was sort of when they were revealed and it kind of went all over the newspapers and they did these kind of size estimates which at the time were maybe a bit of an exaggeration you know been tempered down a little right. bit now but it was, wow, giant ape, 2.5, 3 metres tall, you know, 300 kilos. It existed. Here's proof. And that was kind of all that was needed to say, oh, hang on, we have evidence for these myths. Um, Notwithstanding that these were only found in China. Right, <laughs> but yeah. But it was, it was such a spectacle. So did the myths come first and then the teeth? Yeah, it was It was kind of that way. And, and then the teeth kind of provided evidence i guess right, you would say okay. um which kind of really perpetuated and strengthened the argument of a lot of these sort of bigfoot hunters right so do we have a good idea just from the teeth do we have a good a pretty good idea of what gigantopithecus would have looked like we have some idea so we we know that it's actually of the pongo line so actually last year um, this researcher, Frito Velka, did this amazing proteomic research, which meant he was able to trace the proteins in the line to the Pongo or orangutan line. So we know they probably would have looked similar-ish to them. And then with the teeth, you know, we, we know that they are um, hominoid, so like a giant ape, which gives you some estimation of what they would have looked like. Right. But then what we have is, okay, we know that for enamel, that's you know, this amount of thickness and molars that are this size and canines that look like that, you kind of extrapolate out based on what known primates look like, which sort of gives you the idea. You know, they may have been a different color. Maybe they had more fur, less fur. You can't be too sure. But generally based on what other primates look like, you have a an idea. 
Okay. And does it look like the Bigfoot myths? Does it look like the typical like Bigfoot that you would see? Like Yeah, and the recreations. <laughs> it definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, and I don't know really which was inspired more by which, you know, oh. whether they kind of fed into the artistic interpretations or whether the interpretations fed into the Bigfoot myths. It's not really too known. That is super interesting. Yeah. I'm going to be Googling Bigfoot after this. <laughs> yeah, you, you, if you look up Gigantopithecus, you'll see there's like this this image of this like really tall orange ape-like creature standing next to a guy. And then if you look up Bigfoot, you're like, whoa. <laughs> that is crazy. I mean, this is fascinating and it's so amazing this is happening out of Southern Cross University. Yeah. The things you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of, you know... And my supervisor is sort of one of only several people in the world who kind of does what he does as well. So we're really lucky to have him here. Mm, this is amazing research. Um, what happens when you, how close are you to finishing? Is it a, it's a long process and you're sort of in the first quarter or? Yeah, it's, I've just finished, well, I'm about to finish the first year and it's at least two more. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, probably another six months due to the, the virus that oh, shall okay, not be yeah. named. Yeah, no, we should not speak of it here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How is the surfing going? Are you Have you learned to surf yet? Are you going oh, to? I really want to. Yeah, I, I haven't yet. I'm going to sign up for the next little um, training trip that SCU does. Oh, yeah, they do those, yeah. Yeah. You're going to Byron? So you've been to Byron and seen the area or how, yeah. how's the move gone? Yeah, it was, you know, it was a bit rough. Like when I first got here, you're always so busy you kind of don't get a chance to explore. And it was just as I was settling in that it it hit. Oh, okay. And so I didn't get much of a chance to look around. I've been around a bit more. I've been to Byron a few times, um, been up to the Gold Coast a bit. Yep. So I, I like the area for sure. It's getting hot now. Have you been to any waterfalls yet? No, not yet. You will have to go to some. They are close and it's a must in summer. I'm looking forward to it for sure. Awesome. All right. Well, Mary and Bailey, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.